Hi, everyone. I'm Kara Scott, and welcome to The Heart of Poker, sponsored by 888Poker, a podcast that looks into the personal side of the poker personalities that we often see on our screens. I use a modified list of the questions from the 36 Questions to Fall in Love study, developed about 25 years ago by psychologists as part of an experiment to see if they could make total strangers fall in love with a kind of shortcut for getting to know someone on a deeper level fast. My guest this time is poker player, ambassador, merit poker commentator, writer of scathing articles and tweets, and co-host of the award-winning Chip Race podcast, David Lavin. Thanks for coming on. <laughs> Thank you so much for that lovely introduction. Uh, all true things as well, especially the scathing tweets part. Um, oh, I'm just so uh, overwhelmed to be invited on this show. This is one no. of my favorite podcasts uh, oh. of all the podcasts in the world. Definitely my favorite poker <laughs> podcast. Way better than The Grid. So I've been just uh, looking forward to this do moment for a long time. Up ag- no, do not <laughs> set me up against Jen Jade. We love her. Um, now, I have obviously been breathless with anticipation over chatting to you, but there's also a bit of bronchitis in there. So apologies for any coughing or creaky voice. <laughs> I'm doing my best over here. <clears throat> Now, I feel like we've answered a lot of these questions already when I was going through the list and kind of, you know, preparing as we do. Um, But there was a lot of wine involved whenever we've had these kind of more deep and personal chats. So my memory might be a little fuzzy around some of it. But now we're going to do it kind of like for internet posterity. So anything we say, you know, it's going to be out there. Are you prepared? Does mean we have to fall in love all over again? It's, <laughs> like, uh, it's like eternal sunshine in the spotless mind now. That's true, actually. Yes. Yeah. Let us fall in love and let the, the listeners also fall in love. And we were chatting a little bit before we started the recording about, you know, how we, our processes and, and how much we have in common. And that is kind of what this is all about really is finding that sort of common ground. We talked about the fact that we're both terrible at uh, computer type things <laughs> and you are, you've said to me, you're pretty bad at this, but we've, we've managed, we're here, we're good. Yeah. yeah. There's always that assumption that I think poker players, maybe uh, especially online poker players are really good with tech and mm. I'm the worst person with tech that I know, but because I'm on my computer a lot, people think, oh, well, he must be good. But really, huh. my computer is just a poker machine. That's its singular function to me. Yeah. Well, at least it works for that. Um, so I would say that one of the things that you're really well known for and that I actually really appreciate about you is a willingness to be vocal and critical when you think it's necessary. And, you know, I've always maintained that it's so important to criticize and think critically about the things that we love, like poker, like the industry that we both make a living in and love and, you know, have been in for a very long time. That's kind of how progress happens is the willingness to criticize. So I'm curious how you would like characterize your relationship with the poker industry. I love poker and I love yeah. the poker community so much. I think my biggest bugbear these days is that since I guess all the way back to UIGA, the regulation, maybe the government overreach, the nanny statism mm. of, uh, and how that's been applied to poker for so long has actually had a really unintentional, I'm sure, when those rules came in, they probably, maybe, who knows, maybe even George Bush uh, Jr. really cared about, you know, <laughs> minding his people. I'm not sure. Even if you were to give everyone the, the maximum amount of credit for, for doing this for good reasons, mm. um, 
I think the inadvertent consequences, it's pushed so much of poker. Recent study, I believe something like 75 to 80% of poker has been pushed into black and gray markets worldwide. Oh. We used to be all together. And yeah, okay, I, I do understand that you know, taxation, ring fencing regulations are required. And, and of course, you know, it would be great if we could all be under one umbrella together and accept a certain reasonable amount of that. But every mm. country does have its own different sort of beliefs on that or, or yeah. approach to it. And the consequence is actually that like, it's like prohibition. People will get mm. their fix of poker wherever they can and they'll go underground for it. And these apps are an absolute nonsense. And I think some of the sites that have sort of been born out of that app culture in the last few years have run roughshod over regulations and, and don't protect players. And I'm really worried there's just hundreds of mini pyramid schemes out there in the poker world with these agent systems and players mm. are very vulnerable. And that's the one thing that will kill this industry, a game I love so much and think is a wonderful strategic game is if people just keep getting burnt by bad actors uh, who are being facilitated yeah. by the bad landscape. I, I think that's the thing that probably, if you were to find a through line in all my criticisms and all my giving out online, mm. it's probably that. Yeah. And it feels like we're at a really strange place right now in history for poker, you know, considering AI and solvers and all of that as well. And and thankfully, you know, a really nice boom with live poker. But it's, I mean, it's been a long time since Black Friday. It was a long time coming getting to like an, a live poker boom. It's been not exactly a, an upwards trajectory all the way through. What do you think is we're going to see coming going forward? I think poker is more popular than it's ever been in more countries than it's ever been. And if we were a global community, that would be really blatantly obvious. Mm. The big online sites would have 3x, 4x the liquidity they currently do. Uh, but because we're sort of fragmented in that way, it's harder to tell that reality. Yeah. Um, I think the economy has something to do with it as well. We're probably in a bit of a debt bubble right now. If that bursts, I think we'll see a downturn like we did mm. 10 years ago. But that doesn't mean the popularity of the game isn't still there. We, you obviously need money and a certain amount of money to keep certain parts of the industry healthy. And I, I think uh, we're in a particularly buoyant period for that. Um, but the popularity of the game is the popularity of the game. And if people can't afford to go play their 501k tournaments and they just start mm. playing a bit of $20 online instead or whatever it is to get their fix of the game they love, they'll do that. Um, I, I think we're in a very positive place actually on so many fronts uh it, it's just yes again that nagging thing of like i just i it was so devastating when players got burnt after yeah uigea and and black friday it was so uh negative to see so many people go into these kind of underground poker apps i've heard some horror stories of people being burnt already and i'm hearing mm. more and more of them and uh, and and yeah like sites like 888 unibet who i'm an ambassador for um mm -hmm. stars uh there are companies i think doing it the right way and trying to to, to build the game in a in a in a way that's responsible mm -hmm. i think there's other sites that are building it in a way that's less responsible um but at the same time they're catering to a huge need out there because the game is so popular. Yeah, people really want to play poker and there's nothing wrong with playing poker. And it's one of those weird things where like so much morality gets attached to it by different sectors of society, not even in all countries. I mean, America has so much sway and that kind of, I don't know, like that underlying puritanical nature. And I'm from North America, so I you know would include Canada in this as well. 
It's um, it's weird. And it, it gets its little fingers into all kinds of things. And the fact that it sort of did that with poker as well is so strange for someone who has spent 20 years playing poker. And I love poker. And I would not say that I'm, I don't know. I mean, I like the seedy underbelly of something as much as anyone. It's fun, let's be honest. But I <laughs> definitely prefer like, you know, things on the up and up. I don't know. Okay. We're going to dive into some questions from the study now though. Um, one of the things that I love about poker, and I've said this before, but it's being able to meet people and then getting to know their stories and just being like, wait a minute, <laughs> like what? You came from where? You did what? Like your family is who? And I love that. And that was kind of a really cool thing when you and I became friends as well, is getting to know who you are. So can you give us a rundown of your history, kind of like where you come from, um, your personal story. Now, the official question here gives you only four minutes for this, but we're going to allow some wiggle room. So, so yes, I'm an Irishman, uh, born and reared in Dublin. Uh, probably at the age of about 13 or 14, I guess, I started playing kitchen table games of poker with my mates. You will remember, of course, Cara Late Night Poker. I think it was a very yeah. influential show to anyone from the UK and Ireland. Uh, Barney Boatman and yeah. Devilfish and these kinds of guys. Lots of Irish lads as well. Gentlemen, Liam Flood, Porrick <laughs> Parkinson, uh, playing poker in a smoky studio set. I think it was in Cardiff <laughs> somewhere. And uh, yeah, that was a very appealing, cool thing for me and my pals. And we used to play like five quid sit and goes together um, on someone's kitchen table. And mm. then that was always kind of there for me as a, as a as a fun game and an interest. And what actually happened was in um, about 2004, when I was about 23, I was writing a TV show which featured as its main character a poker player. I thought it would be cool to, to write a poker player into the show. And in an effort to be a good writer, I researched poker even more deeply around that time. About six months later, the show got cancelled and oh. uh, the legacy was I'd actually gotten kind of good at poker <laughs> and decided, well, I guess I'll do this for a few months and try and keep the wolf from the door before my next writing gig. Hmm. And that actually snowballed into my career, which is, you know, still going strong 20 odd years later. That's so funny to me because we both got into poker through television, just completely different routes. But like <laughs> that was the reason for both of us. And and so what was it about the game that really captured you in that early stage? Because for me, I was pretty lucky early on. And so, I mean, winning is fun, let's be honest. And it really kind of caught my attention. And then it kind of sustained me through realizing I wasn't actually very good at it and I actually needed to work at it. So what caught your attention? Well, firstly, that's just a very humble way of saying you took a disgusting amount of money from the Irish poker community. <laughs> uh, Secondly, yes, I did. <laughs> <laughs> secondly, I would say uh, kind of a degen answer, I guess. Uh, I'm kind of a different person now, 20 years on, and probably yeah. have different overall outlook. But what really attracted me to poker was the idea that you could bring your money to a table and win someone else's money off. <laughs> Very simple. Nice. Yeah, I mean, it's fun. I can't argue with that. Okay, how about this one? Are you a singer? And when's the last time that you sang either to yourself or to someone else? I sing every day. I'm nice. not a particularly good singer, but I sing in the shower. Um, I think I was belting out some talking heads in the shower about an hour <laughs> ago. Uh, yeah, no, that, shamelessly, I sing all the time and often get told to shut up. So I'm assuming it's not great. <laughs> so you're never going to be famous for being a singer, but have you ever no. actually wanted to be famous? You worked in television. Your family history is around like um, entertainment as well. So, you know, what would you like to be famous? 
I think people won't believe me when I say this, but I don't care one iota about fame, mm. but I do care really deeply about how people I respect think of me. Right. So I think I've actually been good at that dichotomy, uh, not caring about random people's opinions and deeply caring about the views of people I care about and respect. I, I think that's like a crucial life lesson. And I think I learned it early, which is good. Hmm. hmm. Okay. Well, what do you, what would you say for your life? What do you feel the most grateful for, especially this point in your life now, family man and the poker career and the whole thing? Yeah, no, I, I feel grateful for an awful lot. Uh, you, absolutely what you said about family. Uh, my partner and I uh, really struggled to make a family about six, seven years ago. And, you know, we've been able to have two sons now. So that's really special. But I think probably friendships. Uh, like, I, I just think the idea of friendship mm. is so pure. Um, just that idea that two people choose each other, like there's no hierarchy, um, you bear witness to each other's lives. I've been lucky to keep friends from lots of different phases of my life. And you probably have something similar, but like even with the pals I don't see for a year or more now, we pick up immediately where we left off when we do meet up. And I think I've gone so far as to even try and turn family relationships into friendships oh. over the years. I think that's almost like my highest bar. So even with mm. family, which w- would for some people very understandably be the highest bar, I think I've tried to emulate friendship in those relationships, if that makes sense. Yeah. What, what do you see as being that difference between friendship and family? What's the kind of extra added piece? I suppose it's the how you're not bound to each other, but you choose each other. It's the loyalty and the fidelity to a person that you could totally just walk away from. Mm, yeah. 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 That makes sense. So if you look at your friends and like you said, they've come from all different walks of life. Is there a common thread like um, in terms of personality or, or something? Um, Who are you choosing? This is my question. I think I've I think I've always been attracted to intelligence. I think I, mm. I I've I've tried to make myself the stupidest person in my <laughs> social groups by glomming on to clever people. I really do just love deep, meaningful conversations and yeah. you know having chats about interesting topics, politics, philosophy, mm-hmm. and whatever. So uh, yeah, I I think uh, I'm probably drawn to smart people if that makes sense. Well, that's nice. I'm going to take that as a compliment. <laughs> no, <laughs> Absolutely, just, you should. Uh, well, I'm just thinking about the, you know, a conversation that you and I had in Madrid, which was like the real first in-person conversation, and it lasted a very long time. And it was cold, and we were sitting outside for me <laughs> and having a lot of wine. And at some point, I actually did some like online babysitting of my child because <laughs> you know her father was struggling and needed a break, and so I was kind of interacting with her on the phone at the table and talking to you. And we had this incredible conversation, not in her earshot, obviously, about um, like infertility and that whole kind of experience that you've just mentioned that, you know, you and your partner dealt with as well and that I had as well. And, and kind of being able to have those conversations for me has been, I don't know, I think it is one of the things in poker that I'm most grateful for because poker allows for those kinds of time where you're 
not on holiday, but you're in another location. And there's something about being in another location where you can go and sit and have a cup of coffee or a glass of wine or a meal and have these conversations that don't always happen, at least for me when I'm at home. You know, I don't know. Have you found that sort of like the itinerant life traveling with poker to be a good thing in your life, a positive or a, a negative? Yeah, a, a massive, massive positive. Uh, I can think of other evenings like that one. That was a very special evening as well, getting to know you better than I ever did before. And yeah, I just, I hold those kind of opportunities up on a pedestal because they are like singular moments in time where two mm. people are in a different country or wherever they happen to be because their lives have crossed through poker. And yeah, your objective is to sort of have a couple of glasses of wine and, <laughs> you know, get over the jet lag or whatever was the initial, probably both of our intentions, but end up having a wonderful, deep and meaningful conversation about all aspects of our lives. Mm. And, uh, and, and yeah, making that connection, which I think is uh, the meaning of life. I think those kinds of connections are, are really paramount and fundamental to uh, what makes us human beings. And yeah, no, I, I, I absolutely do think that poker sort of helps that net get cast really wide as well. You mm. meet people in all sorts of circumstances. Uh, I think you actually meet a lot of bright people too. I, I made that sort of prejudice I have for, for clever people. I think poker <laughs> players are very clever in lots of ways. You know, you'll certainly meet some people who don't seem to have a lot of common sense sometimes. <laughs> but yeah, I, I think it's a, a wonderful, eclectic community. And, and I think that's another thing about poker is that you can't really sum up what a poker player will be. Uh, I think a big part of the reason why Darren and I are so passionate about our podcast, The Chip Race, is because what we try and do is give a really good broad spectrum mm. of all the different kinds of personalities and characters that exist in the game and how we're, we're probably all united by something, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, probably all united by something degenerate and something <laughs> a little bit subversive or underground. But actually, it's a completely diverse group of people who may be like being on the periphery um, yeah. and that's their linking thing. But, but yeah, it makes for amazing conversations, even at the poker table, amazing conversations. Yes. Yeah. Something I've always thought like before poker, I was working in television, but before television, I was actually a teacher. I was a school teacher in England, in London. And, you know, I, I, I was going to say I loved my job. I didn't. Um, <laughs> it's a really hard job, but I enjoyed it. And I really enjoyed my colleagues and I liked the kids. But every day I, when I went to school and I went to work, I did see exactly the same people. And I knew exactly who I was going to see. I had a class list. I knew the other teachers in the staff room. And that was it. And maybe, you know, on the weekend I would go out to a pub, but generally it was the pub that all my friends and teachers went to. And so I wasn't really interacting with a ton of new people. And every time I sit down at a live poker table, I'm sitting down with complete strangers. And for me, I don't know, having my life kind of open up in that way and being just exposed, I guess, to people from all different walks of life was something that I found super invigorating. And I was the annoying person, definitely, who was always like, oh, let's exchange stories. Let's talk about who we are. <laughs> you know? No, we're here to play poker, Kara. Um, but, you know, both can be true, right? <laughs> But I think that's the brilliant thing about this show, actually. And maybe I think that's the brilliant thing about this show, actually, is because you would have always struck me as quite a publicly private person. Yeah. If that makes sense. But you chose to have a show now over the last whatever it is, two and a half years, where, yes, the whole point of it is you're 
asking me, the guest, the question and all the different guests you've had the question, but what has been the slow reveal and a wonderful thing about this show is it's you revealing those kind of answers yourself little by little over the course of 50 episodes or whatever it's been. And, uh, and I think that's been a real interesting thing because Kara's got the WSOP presenter, eight ambassador is, you know, a, a pillar of poker society. <laughs> but the real Kara is not as well known, I think, to people. And that's what this show really successfully achieves. Thank you. I appreciate that. It was definitely a consideration for me when starting it because I knew that I would not be comfortable asking people really personal questions if I wasn't able to do some of that myself in return. And like, I know that there is an enormous amount that I've held back for, I don't know, a book at some point, who knows. Um, But every once in a while, it's kind of fun to sort of be like, actually, there is more to me than just, you know, I can smile and I can deliver to camera and and do the conversation pieces, but that doesn't give a lot of personality. And I always think when I'm interviewing people, it's more about them. So I'm not trying to be the personality on screen, especially, you know, at the World Series, that kind of thing. So thank you. I appreciate that. It has been nice for me. It's been good for me, I think, to kind of be a little more public and personal and that sort of thing. Um, Let's get personal about you now, because you're the guest. So we didn't really talk a lot about your family history in your kind of personal history, but I do have a question here that is one of the ones that I, I like the most, but I do find the most difficult to answer myself, and a lot of people do. If you could change anything about the way that you were raised, what would it be? Well, that's a good question. Um, I think uh, it's all a bit sad, but like my parents broke up when I was very young. And even though they were definitely a couple who should not have stayed together, and it was right for them to break up, I think it did become a hang up for me throughout my life. I remember Mm. again, coming back to that TV show, the same one I mentioned earlier, uh, when I was writing that show, I was writing these fictional characters who were sort of loosely based on friends I had and different kinds of, you know, Mm. the way you do it, you, you take different parts of lots of things. And suddenly I remember reading back the first episode finished script and going, Oh my God, what I'm actually doing is this sort of, wish fulfillment of a child to put his parents back together again. And I didn't realize that's what my story was kind of really about until I kind of looked at it a bit more objectively Mm. um, when I'd finished writing it. And I think that is something that just sort of stays with you. I think it makes me uh, petrified of losing Sharon um, and uh, fucking things up there because (laughs) uh, I really would hate, I'd be brokenhearted if my kids were in that um, broken family for want of a better phrase I know there's probably a better way of putting that now but uh that's sort of how I always felt and even though yes I'm a big boy and I got over it and or maybe I didn't but you know (laughs) you you grow up uh, I think it's always been a very substantial part of my character and personality that I probably would wish for not to have been yeah yeah that's such a hard one um, when I think about my own parents and and thankfully, you know, both still with us because I love my parents deeply and dearly, I there were definitely times where as, even as a kid, I was like, oh, they should not be together. <laughs> and they are. And, you know, um, they're very different people. My mom is incredible and she is, it, she's really the carer for my father now as well. And so their relationship has changed enormously over 
the very long time that they've been together. And and I do wonder like how life would have been different had they split up and and you know, the impact on us as kids and all of that. So it makes you, like you say, you think about it a lot more when you become a parent and you're like conscious of the effect of your decisions, which used to just be about you. And that was kind of nice when you're in your 20s and you're like, really, your decisions are just about you if you don't have a family. Uh, And now they have so much more like reverberation for other people's lives and generations. It's hard being like the older generation. I don't feel equipped, man. I'll be honest. (laughs) (laughs) I'm not sure I feel equipped to be like, yeah, an ancestor. So... (laughs) Uh, anyways. Okay. So let's talk about the difference between sort of mind and body and where your connection really lies. The question goes, if you were able to live to the age of 90 and keep either the mind or the body of a 30 year old for the last 60 years of your life, which would you want? I know how I'm going to answer this question because I do listen to the show all the time. <laughs> and this is the one when I'm on my little walk or whatever it is and I, I have you in my ear. I'm always answering this one to myself as the guest is. Yeah. Uh, body, definitely. Um, I was really? very fit. Yes, 100%. I was very fit when I was young and I was reasonably fit until I was about 27. But I have been falling apart in increments ever since. Um, I wrote an article about a year ago, actually, in which I said how I'd gotten reminded of an old photo of myself when I remembered feeling old and fat, but it was an image of a much younger and slimmer me. Um, Mm -hmm. And I said how I remembered how on that day, those photos were taken probably by the same wicked Facebook algorithm. I had looked back on an even earlier (laughs) version of myself from a time when I felt old and fat and useless. But again, it was an image of an even younger, even more youthful, skinnier me. Um, And I said how the lesson I should take from that is that I'll one day look back at a photograph of me Uh now and think how young and thin I appeared. But the lesson I'll actually take is that one day I'm going to be ancient and morbidly obese and utterly decrepit. And the algorithm will remind me of a picture of me today. And I'll be (laughs) envious of me now, which will in turn make me envious of two earlier versions of me. Oh, my gosh. Long let themselves go. So (laughs) um, the reason my answer is that is actually... My mind has changed as I've gotten older. So I'm in my early 40s and I quite like how it's changed. I quite like how my views change, Mm. how I've evolved. So I look forward to having the mind of a 50-year-old, the mind of a 60-year-old, and maybe the mind of an 80 to 90-year-old will be a bit sketchy. So that would be the trade-off period. But I I look forward to being a hopefully wise 70-year-old person with Hmm. the mind of a 70 year old I'm not scared of that part but I'm absolutely petrified of my current physique getting even worse (laughs) than it already is (laughs) that is the first time I think that I have been swayed to that side of the answer because I can actually see that because I don't have a problem either with my mind getting older for me because I do deal with a lot of memory issues and I always have and it it is likely to accelerate. That's my issue. I would definitely like to keep the mind, but probably not of a 30 year old. (laughs) That would be a little bit sad to go back that far. Um, But like now I would keep the mind of now quite happily. Mm -hmm. And then, yeah, I don't know. I have some like freakish genetics where I just don't seem to change very quickly physically. No, you still look 30, so fuck it's you. Bizarre. You don't, get to, you don't I know. get to have this problem. I get to be 50 in two years and I'm like, woohoo. And I'll be honest, I can see the difference in myself physically over the last kind of two to three years. Having a kid will do that. 
like uh, the oh no, Karen, did you find your first gray hair? Did you? Oh, oh no, weren't you? It's so hard, David. It's so so hard. Um, but yeah, I don't know I'm what it is. I'm literally like a, a a ball of melted wax over here. <laughs> <laughs> I wish I knew what it was because I have been extremely fortunate, and I'm a little smug about it, which is worrying because um, <laughs> you feel like that is like hubris. You're about to land on your ass, uh, and I hope that is not the case. But you never know. You never know. I feel like it's my uh, Italian genetics because my mom's family is all Italian. And there is this like tendency to be fairly young looking up into a point where you literally go over a cliff and you're a nonna and that's it. So <laughs> that's what I've got in my future. <laughs> I'm all right with that. Um, yeah, that's fine. Okay. So considering what you feel about your physicality, do you have a like a secret hunch about how you might die? Some of these questions, dark but I kind of like that. <laughs> um, no, I have no clue. And I don't really think about that ever. I'll be honest. Um, I hope it's painless uh, or funny. <laughs> I hope <laughs> oh I die God. humorously so that people, you know, have mixed feelings about it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. <sighs> okay. <laughs> and that's it. He's going to leave that's it just there. <laughs> All right. Fair enough. Um so if you could wake up tomorrow and you could have gained any one quality or ability, what would it be? Oh, this is like the superpower question. I yeah. Or a real thing. Like it could be either. I'd go superpower because why not? But anything you like. I think it's going to be that um, sort of mind meld thing of I'd like people to know what I intended by what I said, mm. <laughs> because you, you, you made the point about how I'm kind of someone who fires off shots in a sense, yep. and I do, and I always have been. And actually, I've mellowed. If people met me yeah. 15 years ago, they they they'd feel like I was even more obnoxious. Huh. So, um, I think knowing that the deeper intent of both both somebody else's intentions and they they to know mine a kind of a mm. mind meld um would be useful i think because so much gets lost in language language is a very uh poor communication tool like it's the best one we yeah. have and we're all quite good at it but it really doesn't do justice to feelings we don't have the right words for feelings most of yeah. the time and uh yeah i just feel as though if there was a a, a way to avoid language and just have the intention and feeling known by right. the other person immediately. Uh, I think we'd all live much more harmoniously. Yeah. Or the opposite. <laughs> no, maybe, or maybe the opposite when I'm really feeling not nice. Things. That's true. Um, and, I'm, and I'm just on that rare occasion being <laughs> polite. <laughs> right. So what do you think is like the biggest misconception that people have of you based on your writing? Curious. Um, I think people assume that it's attention seeking. Oh, okay. Interesting. I think they think it's maybe clickbait if it's written or ah. they think it's, uh, having a sort of strong outlandish opinion for the sake of, you know, standing out. Right. And it's not, I, I genuinely like I, if I, if I write or even when I'm just thinking of what I believe, I do make every effort to, to really think deeply and, and genuinely think it. Uh, and I've had some high profile rows of people over the years yeah. too. 
Have you? And, uh, and I stand by everything there. Like, I don't look back and then I'd be off. Obviously, you might say one thing here and there, but like, I, right. I look back and I go, no, I would, I, I, everything was done because of something somebody said or uh, a way somebody behaved that I thought needed to be either called out or remarked on. Yeah. And then people just immediately go, oh, you're just looking for attention for yourself, for your own mm. brand. Like as if my brand is that like <laughs> relevant, like in any, you know, it's that's a bit that I've never understood. Right. But I think it's very easy, actually, for sometimes people of a higher status um, in a community. Like, let's just use poker as the clear example of it. And I'm sure people know the one I'm talking about here, <laughs> where for that person, it's very easy to call me a troll. Yeah, because they can just sort of write off what I'm saying or what I feel or what I've expressed as being me clambering or glomming onto their greater notoriety to just have a difference of opinion with them and express it strongly. Whereas actually, in reality, I was always dealing with somebody's actual comment, some shitty thing that they said or did or believed. Mm. And I was always attacking their ideas and I was always debating their um, expression of those ideas. And that person, I suppose, didn't want to look inward or didn't want to acknowledge maybe some of the better points in that. So it was, it was easier for them to just like go, oh, he's a troll. Mm. And I'm definitely not a troll. Like I, you know, obviously do like taking the piss a bit and being humorous if I can. But I, I think there's a big difference there between um, uh, the intent of what I always was doing, which was to, you know, debate someone and their ideas and like their poor thoughts on something um, mm-hmm. at the time versus, you know, maybe a perception that I was just looking for attention for myself. Yeah, I can see that. I can. I think um, a very long time ago, there was uh, someone who was involved in poker and who was a writer. And I would have a lot of issues with this person. And I'm obviously not going to say who it is and they're not doing it anymore and it's not worth looking back into, but their kind of thing was to be controversial and it was clickbaity because that was literally their job. Like if people weren't clicking, they weren't going to make money and they were like writing an enormous amount of articles, enormous, because that is what they did for a living. And I can, I can respect that. Like that's a tough grind and I could not do it. But in order to make that work, they had to say things that were controversial just to get eyes on. And I had such an issue with that. And we would argue about it because I said it was like inflammatory and kind of dangerous. And sometimes, obviously, it would it would hit harder when it was kind of saying something about something I believed in or something about me, something that like resonated with me. But I just thought it doesn't it doesn't allow for conversation. And that was one of their like arguments. This this creates a conversation. And I was like, no, this creates an idea that these two sides are the same and that we can debate them and that we should debate them. Like, and sometimes debate's just not necessary. So I can see what you're saying. Yeah. Like, cause there is, there is the case where people are, maybe it's not for their brand, but it's for their job. They're trying to get eyes on things, but there's a difference between that, especially kind of the idea of punching down for clicks and punching up and saying, actually, someone has a big platform and I don't think they're using it correctly or I think they're having a bad influence on things and I think it's it needs to, someone needs to say something. And that's a tough thing to do because you really do put yourself out there for the criticism. Yeah, and, and I think just in case there's any misconstruence here, 
there is a whole industry built around exactly what I just said. I think I falsely get accused of sometimes. Yeah. Like the, and, and the incentives are misaligned in that industry. And for those people, as you said, your friend, maybe, you know, his job relied upon getting a lot of clicks to his articles. Mm. I can tell you now I get paid per word if nobody yeah. reads what I write or lots of people do. It doesn't make any difference to my bottom line. And actually, I always think that the, the the people who sort of say to me, you're always firing shots and saying negative things are the people who don't read everything I write, which is, by the uh. way, also okay. You don't have to read all the stuff. <laughs> but I always think, well, it's just interesting because if you think that I only write negative things, then you've only clicked on the negative things. Right. Because that's the thing that's drawn you in, which, of course, that's kind of human nature and that does happen. Mm-hmm. But I think it also sort of, in that sense, puts a mirror up to people because – Uh, I was actually forced to sort of prove this point recently when someone had a go at me saying I was very negative. And I I went back through two years of articles and 25 out of 126 were critiquing something and being a little bit negative. And I was like, that doesn't seem like an imbalance. But in that person's mind, they probably only clicked those articles. So they thought, there's Dave again, the guy who's shouting the odds. Yeah, yeah. And it kind of reminds me of that study that someone did. And I'm going to butcher it because I don't have it all to hand. But in crowd scenes in television and films, um, <clears throat> excuse me. So the person who is in charge of getting all the extras will rely far more heavily on getting male extras. Because if you have more than, I think it's 30% women, it is perceived by the audience generally that there are more women than men. It's a heavily female crowd, oh. which is kind of wild. So sometimes, yeah, depending on what we're expecting, we, we're creating it to be so much bigger in our minds. So yeah, it's not a perfect bridge between the two ideas, but it, it brought it mm. to mind. So there you go. Um, so what do you think you want out of life? Here's a big question. Like when you get to the end, what would make you think, yeah, I'm, I'm glad about this. I did this right. I guess a happy death is the goal. Oof. Happy um, or funny. Yeah, happy or hilarious. <laughs> uh, yeah. Um, yeah, if you can get to the end of life feeling that sort of maybe zen expression, sentiment or whatever it is, I think that must be kind of the goal. Um, I'd like to have people around me who love me and Mm. you know want for that to be a a big part of um how I look back on things and and sort Mm. of remember my life but yeah I don't know I I I think you, you get these kind of um positive feelings from different aspects of your life like I definitely get them professionally Mm -hmm. uh, as a poker player I love the strategy of the game and I love when I feel like I did something right. And there's a, there's a huge amount of um, ego or pride you get from those kind of moments Do yeah. a job well done. I think with the content side of things, as I've sort of segued into that more and more, and who knows, like this is this stage of my life. Hopefully I don't die too soon. So this won't be maybe necessarily a big part of the overall. But if it was to, if I was to drop dead tomorrow, I suppose I'd look back in the last 10 years and, you know, the work with Dara on the show mm. and stuff like that being a part of a, a a body of work and a bit of a legacy of, you know, trying to yeah. showcase the best of us. Um, I would hope that, you know, I would be able to look back on that with pride. I guess I'll always, unless I address this at some later point in my life, I'm always going to think of the road I didn't, didn't travel down in yeah. screenwriting. 
and I'll probably feel like I was a coward hmm. uh, unless I deal with that at some point, which I still really do hope I do. Um, but I just have to not be a coward for that. Really? You think it's, do you think it's fear that's keeping you away from that? Yeah, I think it's um, a reaction to how gambly mm. a decision it would be to fully immerse myself in the writing yeah. world again. I always say to people, I, I'm not a gambler as a poker player. I, right. you know, this was the safest choice I could have made. I was good at poker. It was kind of like a little trick I figured out quickly. Mm-hmm. And I could make way better money than I could do in anything else I was being paid to do at poker. So mm. that was not a gamble from that point of view. Obviously, there's variance. And, you know, we all understand the, the, the day-to-day of poker being gambly. But it really, as an overall decision, was not a gamble. The bigger gamble would have been to be a writer. And I feel as though it's partly that, but partly that humiliating experience of having a show very early on that I didn't deserve to have, frankly. I kind of got picked up as a very young um, green writer um, who didn't deserve the break. But Mm. then that break got swept away from me within a year and I felt completely mortified um, by that experience. So I'm really, I really don't want that to happen again too. Yeah. It's funny because hearing you talk about it earlier without that kind of context, it seemed to me like what an amazing thing (laughs) that he had a show that he was writing for show at such a young age. Like it feels like such a success and the industry, I mean, we both know it, things get swept away. The bulk of things get swept away. (laughs) Very few things, you know, kind of stand the test of time. Uh, Yeah. I can see how it would have felt like that for sure. Does it feel like at all a success though, that you like were, that you achieved that? No, no, not really? not even a tiny bit because it didn't end up on TV. It ended up being a box of scripts that didn't get made. Yeah. Um, so being commissioned to write them is nice. I got a year's salary out of it. Yeah. But actors never read those words. Uh, a director never came on board to make it even better than right. it was on the page. So no, I, I actually just have a total hollow um, memory of that. Um, <sighs> And, and, and that experience. And I, subsequently, I tried to write uh, with a writing partner, a very talented mm. guy who now works for um, Grand Theft Auto. He writes storylines and characters for video uh-huh. games and whatnot, which is a, obviously another way in which you can flex that sort of writing muscle and fair play to him on that. We have a great show that we wrote together, which we tried to get made a, a few years later and similarly just kept going up against those brick walls. And it was just mm. really... Gosh, it's just so hard when that happens, you know, because you yeah. put your uh, heart and soul into those kinds of creative pro- projects in a way that, you know, I don't think people working in other kinds of jobs necessarily yeah. do. Um, yeah. You kind of risk yourself to a much greater degree. And then when that doesn't work out, you really feel personally slighted. If that makes yeah, sense. no, it absolutely does. Yeah, yeah, it absolutely does. So aside from the fear from of that fear of kind of going back into writing, do you think that... Do you, do you have another kind of great fear in your life or have you ever been sort of genuinely terrified? Uh, I was in a couple of car crashes, which were very oh. frightening in that moment. Yeah. They ended up being kind of not serious ones where nobody was badly hurt, but there was certainly a moment where the car jackknifed and we were careering oh. backwards on the other side of a road. It was a country road that had there been an oncoming car, mm. we were gone. 
So uh, we ended up like the back of the car hit the wall and it was a bump, but it was fine. But there was five seconds there that felt like an eternity where you're like, oh my God, is this it? Uh, That was pretty scary. (laughs) Um, But yeah, that that's probably the the standout ones. I suppose the things that you're obviously terrified of is like something happened to your kids mm. or your partner. Um, I think those kinds of uh, mortal fears of uh, yeah. maybe other people more than yourself sometimes is the hardest one to. You, but you you probably are terrified of it and then instantly repress it so you don't think about it. If that makes yeah, sense. exactly. They're the one I was just thinking that they're the ones that you kind of push out of your head because they're yeah. actually too difficult to even consider and think about. It's it's much easier to be scared of spiders. <laughs> like yeah, right. And I right. and I do have one of them. Like I'm petrified of needles. Like I'm a total oh. loss when it comes to needles. So uh, yeah, I, I I I that that's one that I can just be you know the whole day before the the vaccine shot or whatever it is. Oh. I'm just like oh god, it's like feeling sick in my mouth kind of thing. So yeah. I, I'm, I, yeah, I, have a, I have a silly one like that too. <laughs> All right. Well, I'm going to finish on a question that um, I kind of, I, I like this one. It wasn't in the original study, but it's kind of come out of different conversations with people over uh, the last few years of this podcast. Do you have like a, a guiding principle in your life? Like what would be your North Star? Is there something that kind of not just drives you, but that you use to keep yourself in the right place that you know you're doing the right thing? I think my girlfriend is my North Star. <laughs> she, she, she definitely sort of um, takes care of me and uh, is, is very, um, like, grounding. Because she, she takes no shit. Like, yeah. she takes no prisoners, um, nor should she. So I think... My, the, the the worst excesses of what my personality get softened by her mm. um but also you know she has just been so vital to me having a happy life now we as i said got together we were actually got together really early on um uh, broke up and then ended up back together again 10 years later and mm. uh wanted to have children we talked about that earlier we couldn't for a while and in the end it was kind of a a much tougher process and one which I do strongly feel like if it had just been me I don't know if I'd have been able to keep going yeah she's so resilient and strong and um has always pushed us and we adopted our son Nico um our second boy uh, just earlier this year Mm -hmm. and she, she says it and I kind of push back against this, but actually I'm wrong to, she always sort of says, look, I do end up doing all of this stuff and you don't do as much. Mm. And she's absolutely right because I would probably, the coward thing again, maybe I would give in earlier where she just never gives in. Wow. And she said something to me recently about feeling as though her career had kind of been put on hold for the last probably nearly a decade because of all of this stuff. And she's super talented, super creative person who should and hopefully will go on to express that in uh, interesting work uh, that she'll do over the next 20 years. But she she definitely did sacrifice that stuff Mm -hmm. for us um, in a big way. And I feel as though without her, my life would just... I can't even imagine what it would look like. So I suppose... Uh, to answer your question in a very roundabout way, um, my guiding principle is 
don't let go of Sharon. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, is, yeah. Is sort of, um, make sure she feels appreciated. Right. And I know day to day, I don't succeed at that. Mm. But I hope overall in our lives, she would understand how much she means to me and how, how great um, uh, those qualities she has have how they've managed to really transform our lives mm. together. Mm. I really look forward to meeting her one day. Just the oh, way you, you guys will get her. on like a house on fire. Yeah, you guys she will get on so amazing. well. Yeah, mostly <laughs> mostly because you're both red wine drinkers, and I imagine that would just turn into uh, <laughs> that'll help a lot. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I look forward to that. I I really do. And <clears throat> thank you so much for being game to do this kind of interview. That was actually our our last question. I, I'm really glad we finished on it because that's beautiful as a tribute. And yeah, it's very human, and it, I think it's very relatable as well. Yeah. Well, I think you just sometimes um, have to acknowledge that uh, whether it's like that you're part of a community, that's the poker community, or mm. you're part of a, a friendship group, or you're part of a family, or you're part of a couple, that the role that the other people play is usually so much bigger than the role you play yourself right? Um, to how anything pans out. And uh, yeah, just sort of getting the opportunity to have questions of a personal nature come to me because, you know, it's not the standard poker yeah. interview, uh, just gives you a chance to, to think more deeply about that and recognize that. Um, yeah. And, and acknowledge the, the importance of the great friends in your life and, mm -hmm. you know, the greatest one being Sharon for me. Yeah. I love that. And I love that people get a chance to, to know the faces and the, you know, the people behind the writing and the, and the talking and all of that so much better because there's so many good stories and people are, we're all so human and there's so much more in common than we have that is different. And, and I, I love that. I really do love that. Um, so yes, thank you again. And I look forward to catching up in person, uh, at another stop somewhere. And to everyone out there who is listening, thank you so much. I hope you feel like you know the person behind the cards and the commentary even better now. And please join me next time on The Heart of Poker, sponsored by 888 Poker. <laughs>